Hello, I'm John Dorney, and you're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. Hello and welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. I'm Johnston and uh, I've got Connor with me this week. Hello. And we're joined by a very special guest. It's been a while since we had a very special guest. Uh, We are joined by Big Finish writer, actor, script editor, pretty much any role you can name really, uh, Mm. John Dorney. Hello. Hello, how are you? Oh, we're great, thanks. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure, uh, yes. As we edge towards the end of our first series, we thought we'd just try and get one more guest in before yes. having a break. We're, we're heading towards a break now. Um, so uh, we have got a few questions that we're going to sort of throw in your direction. Mm-hmm. That sounds... That's basically why I'm here, so I'm happy to answer anything. Marvellous. Uh, before we continue, uh, this might be the broadest spoiler warning we've ever done, but we could potentially talk about anything that John Dorney has done, which is quite a lot. So uh, there's a few. Yeah. yeah, there's one or two. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll try and flag anything if I feel I'm about to say something, you know, truly sort of monumentally awful about something. I, I tend not to discuss those bits anyway, but we'll see. Ah, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's something to come up. Our lovely listeners have been warned anyway. They they know what they may be in store for. Um, so we will get going straight away. Uh, first question then, uh, just tell us a little bit about how you started, how you first started writing for, for Doctor Who and Big Finish. Um, well, I'd always kind of, I'd always written, um, I, uh, was kind of doing things even when I was like at, at drama school. I'd write little sort of sketches and short plays. And for some reason, I kind of ended up being like pegged as the writer. So we, you do things when you're at drama school where you have little like fight uh, classes. Everyone does stage fight. And the fights have to have a script. And people would keep asking me to write scripts um, that I would then end up going to do. Um, and and so, you know, when I was uh, unemployed as an actor, like most actors are when they leave drama school, I start thinking about trying to write a play and doing things like that. And then it just became something that I would do. I'd always, as I say, I'd always written, I'd be, always done little bits and bobs uh, when I was uh, was growing up and like writing short stories and always basically loved it. Um, and pretty much at, at the time I left um, was roughly when Big Finish started because I think I left in 97 and the first sort of Doctor Who's were 1999. And um, yeah, it was one of the things I quite fancied doing, but... I, I think I'd left it a little bit um, on the side. Like those first years, you could, anyone could submit a script and it gave us things like so Joseph Lidsdale came from that process. Um, 
but uh, I was slightly interested in doing other things. And then I, I think by the time I thought, oh, maybe I do want to do that, the window closed and I couldn't submit anything. And I couldn't submit anything until about 2005. Um, and then I think there's a slightly sort of convoluted process. It's why, why whenever anybody asks me for like advice about how to get into writing it, I can't really help because it was a it was a big old chain of coincidence. One of the things I did do uh, was I was I think um, I, I think people can be a little bit caught up on the idea of no unsolicited submissions and all that. So a lot of the time, you've got to just find a way of making your submission solicited. So the key word is the second one, and so finding some reason why people might. Look at yourself. So I, by the time I, I, I pitched something, I pitched something in around about two thousand and five when there was another open submissions window, and and none of that really came through. But I thought, well, maybe I'll pitch it for something else. And I emailed Nigel Fairs and asked about sort of submitting it as a Tomorrow People story, and that didn't kind of work out. But then I ended up via again a slightly convoluted route, ending up into a Sapphire and Steel. So that's potentially an advice to go. Yeah, don't necessarily feel you have to be aiming for like straight out doing, you know, a Tom Baker four-parter. Um, if you kind of aim for something a bit smaller and hope to work your way up, that's the sort of the way I, I kind of went with it. And yeah, so I got us to do a Saffron Steel, uh, to pitch a Saffron Steel, that got accepted and yeah, everything sort of, you know, spiralled along from there really. Fantastic stuff. So that was it, you kind of, Sapphire and Steel was the way in. Yeah, though admittedly I think there was still after that, there's you ask a lot of people and kind of like start emailing people saying, "Can I pitch you something?" And then I've done this, so um, that kind of helps you along, I think, the way. Excellent stuff. Um, and what would you say the sort of greatest influences behind your work are? Oh, I mean, weirdly, I think initially uh, it's it, it's just well run reading a lot um, and and seeing a lot of theatre and plays. I think initially. Um, because I was sort of writing stage plays. Stage plays are, are, are great to write when you're just trying to learn, because uh, I know people who go out and try to make films and do all those sort of stuff, and it all kind of costs you a lot of money. Trying to attempt to become like a film director costs you a fortune, because you have to like go out and film it, and you take the time to do it. Whereas if you're trying to write a stage play, all you have to do is sit down with a piece of paper and start writing it, and you, you can kind of have a completed play without, without much actual uh, financial outlay. Um, so I'd say a lot of the things that were, were were writers and, and playwrights. So I think initially it's quite heavily influenced by Harold Pinter. Not that you'd ever notice that now, I don't think, because uh, I think um, you kind of start by leaning heavily into your influences, and then the further on you go, you start developing your own voice and seeing what that turns into, really. Um, so yeah, for me it was initially doing a lot of Pinter. I think the very first play I wrote, I, I've said to people afterwards I could have written the phrase I like Harold Pinter about five to ten thousand times and had a better play than the one I wrote because it was so clearly influenced by that sort of the wordiness of it uh, and then yeah over the over the years it begins to develop into its own thing I think um, yeah just watching lots of stories and 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 reading lots of books um, the influences I couldn't necessarily pinpoint as, as a general wash, I think I, if, if I have influences, they're almost like on a specific story at a specific time and depends what I've been watching or reading or, or um, getting into at any given moment. Um, I think it's been a long time since I felt I've got any, any specific influences on my own work. So it's kind of developed into yeah. its own thing, yeah. really, which is excellent, yeah. exactly what you want. Uh, Connor, have you got a question? Yeah, um, so we actually we had a really tough time narrowing down 
questions for this one because you've you've I done a, a you've, you've you've done a lot for a big finish. Yes. Um, but something that kept coming up whenever we were looking through your credits was a lot of the longer sort of story arcs, the likes of Doom Coalition, Stranded, mm. Dalek Universe, the Anne Kelso stories with the Fourth Doctor. Um, what sort of thinking goes into you know developing a series arc like that? Well, it's 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 very variable, um, to be honest. Um, so uh, there are some like most of the Eighth Doctor ones. It, it's it's there's a variable degree of what involvement I have. So say I kind of came in with the Eighth Doctor initially on Dark Eyes and Dark Eyes Four, and that was sort of already quite heavily mapped out by Matt. And I, I had a nominal couple of slots that I could broadly do what I wanted with. Um, as long as I had featured these various things from the the checklist, I think even with uh, the story that became life in the day, Matt had got a sort of outline, but it didn't really feel like one I wanted to write. That's not necessarily saying there was anything wrong with the one Matt wrote, but um, <clears throat> but um, I think with a lot of these, you kind of want to do your own stuff. That's what speaks to you. There's at least been at least another one where. Uh, there's been an idea sort of presented and go, yeah, I kind of don't want to do that. You can do that. It's fine. It, not because it was a bad story, but because it didn't speak to me or sing to me. Um, but then, yeah, Doom Coalition was quite heavily mapped out by uh, Ken and David. Um, Ravenous, somewhat less so. Um, there was, that was a bit more fluid. And uh, we would often have meetings and sort of general discussions about where we wanted to take things. And I think that happens quite a bit with a lot of the... Um, a lot of the ranges, there are a, a, a degree of discussion uh, that happens. Um, we would often end up having meetings in, in various coffee shops around London uh, where we'd talk through what we wanted things to be. Um, and and then often there were conversations between me and Matt. So um, I, I think, I remember right, if I remember rightly, I think there was a meeting about Ravenous 3 uh, which is pretty much the point where we were also told, well, we've got to pretty much immediately go in with Ravenous 4 straight afterwards. I want his vaguely the plan for what we're going to do with Stranded 1. I, th I think even just being in the room kind of helps with some of those things because I, I, I have a faint memory of suggesting a trans companion uh, in the Doomco that is in the Ravenous 3 meeting um, and whether that led to it, whether that would have happened independently, I don't know. Um, and uh, yeah, also I, I think I was in the room kind of thinking that because Dark Eyes, Doom Coalition and Ravenous all had a lot of Time Lord aspects, I kind of wanted to, I was, I was quite keen that we moved away from it being a bit based around Time Lords. Um, but they're just being part of the conversation kind of helped with that. Uh, but a lot of the time there's still, there are still briefs and things that you kind of sort of locked into. Um, did find it kind of relatively entertaining over the weekend where I saw a review where somebody was very, very aggrieved um, with um, the the ending of uh, Stranded, and in particular in terms of how uh, Liv and, and Tanya are left behind. They're saying Dawny's choice of, in this was was a, almost cowardly writing. And you're going, that was the brief. That wasn't me. Um, and uh, I mean, if if I didn't manage to pull it off in a way that works, then there's a, that's I, I, I then, then that's a, not the best bit of writing on my part. But it was the bit we're going. I didn't. I, I don't think the writer chooses the arc stuff most of the time. Um, it's usually the producer and the script editor to varying degrees. So something like um, the Anne Kelso stuff, I had a lot of say in developing that, usually with uh, David, the producer. Um, but I go off and write a nominal arc and a shape and discuss it back and forth, sometimes with other writers. So um, the initial Anne Kelso stuff, I, if I remember rightly, had a lot of back and forth with, with Guy. 
because he was going to script edit me and I was going to script edit him, but he was doing the key, one of the key ones and I was doing another key one and Andy uh, Smith was doing another key one. So having a bit of a chat there was quite useful. But even then, there, there, there's the, the freedom to change things up a bit. So, for example, um, uh, in Doom Coalition, the Sonomancer was originally, the, the character began the Sonomancer was originally supposed to be the full archivist, but I was going, ah, but no, if it, if we make it kind of like a deputy or something like that, that means there's a bit more of a connection with Helen, which which they enabled me to go with. Um, the initial idea of the first Anne Kelsey one was David was suggesting that maybe we have the villain be a son of Mavic Chen and and an appearance by Trantis halfway through. And then I, when I rewatched the Dalek Masterplan as prep, I just went, no, 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 it's Zephon and it's the Technics. That's the bits where we where it feels like that's the bits that kind of would work and be fun. Um, and uh, yeah, so kind of aspects that like that feed into the arcs sort of in general. And then, yes, something like Dalek Universe, I basically plotted out quite heavily. Um, weirdly, forgetting, I basically, if I remember rightly, when I kind of did, came up with the, the arc and the plot of the whole of Dalek Universe, I kind of didn't meant to do anything for my opener. Because uh, I thought, yes, and it starts, this is the Doctor arriving in the past and, you know, all of the stuff and, and whatever, and then specific beats for all the others. And it was only when I had to, like, try and write my opening two parts from again, I've got nothing. Got absolutely nothing. What's this going to be? What can, I, don't, I don't know. And then I had to kind of figure something out because uh, I'd just forgotten to deal with me. Uh, the, the, the other ones that are kind of potentially exceptions are something like the robots, where the robots, I was very keen that each episode took place about a month apart and dealt with the consequences of the previous one. Um so we'd largely say, right, when you write yours, wait, write your storyline, wait, and then the next person gets up, which occasionally caused, which was, there was at least one time that caused a bit of an issue because somebody didn't realise we were waiting on them. So they took a, about another like month and a half going, oh, I, I shuffled things around, I did something else. We go, if you told us, we'd have switched your places in the box set. Um, but bits like that. Uh, but, and, but even then, there was a degree of planning because we did all of the pool and two stuff quite early on. I think roughly alongside box set one. So we had to have a, a vague sense of where we were wanting to take it and what the shape was, but with the freedom to let that kind of develop and change and analyze really. And of course with the robots as well, that went from being um, a four disc, 12 story set to being a six, sorry, to a four, a four box set, 12 story set to a six box set, 18 story set. And but that was quite good because that meant we we could take some threads we developed. I didn't try and like expand the story we'd got because it was made. We'd already done like three sets by the time it was expanded. So felt like well we can't overextend where that's going, but we've got other threads we've been bubbling underway underneath that we can let them thread through and get to the end with those. Um, yeah, so there's 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 aspects of uh, different ways it works with different people. Um, usually, I'd say it's usually this led by the script editor and the producer who make all of the big art decisions about sort of companions and who's in it and the shape of things. But again, there's usually room for discussion uh, where things kind of uh, all gel together, really. Uh, you mentioned the robots um, and it's kind yep. of half answered another question I wanted to ask, which was oh, yes. actually how much did it change sort of throughout the, you know, initially coming up with the four sets and it ending up being the, six sets were there any sort of big noticeable changes in there that you could point out i mean out? i mean not really i mean even to the degree where uh, we vaguely knew how the series was going to finish regardless like as in a you know even like from the get-go i was already determined that the final episode was always going to be matt fitton just because you know he did the original escape to cal escape escape from caldor yes escape from caldor story and just 
thinking he would be the best person to tie these things off. And he's also really good at like tying together multiple plot threads and making it all work um, anyway. So he's literally the exact person you'd want on board for it. Um, but actually surprisingly little. Um, there are things where um, I, I, I suspect uh, we'd probably have used um, uh, David and Pamela a bit more. Um, if it, it, or, but I'm not sure quite how we'd have managed that because I think obviously getting the extra couple of sets largely tied together with t largely having about the same time as as lockdown and made things a bit awkward and obviously we lost um, David Collins as well which which changed at least a, a, a little bit of the plans but the actual expansion was more um, we we I th think you can sort of see the plot we were planning for the first four sets is still kind of there, but it's, it, I suppose this is something I quite like. I like uh, with something like say Babylon five versus something like lost, uh, where there is a sense that with Babylon five, you get to the end of the first series of Babylon five and pretty much everything, every question that the pilots asked has been answered by about the beginning of season two. Um, but they've already set up a few new questions underneath and you start answering those. And it, Whereas Lost kind of just like builds up loads of questions and just can never quite be bothered to answer them and it just gets infuriating and annoying. Uh, and I think with that, we were, that meant that when I was looking at the expansion, it was, it was, I was very happy to take... I, I, I think you can see where we were going, but we developed other things where we are going, oh, we can explore this angle more. We can see where this thread goes now and have the time to develop other things underneath. Um... And so, yeah, I think it, it means that if anything, we end up with sort of two overlapping three to four disc arcs uh, that kind of coincide roughly around box set four. And um, yes, yeah, so I got to expand the story, basically. But the actual story we originally wanted to tell, yeah, was was kind of largely the, 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 the basis of the first four and then spun off in a new direction after that. Right. Excellent stuff. And it was a great series. Really enjoyed it. So it was... Looking, very looking forward to that final box set. It felt like it took an awful long time to get here, but it was... It did a bit, but then, yeah. It, 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 that, yes, fantastic. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, so um, I'm just going to drag you back to something you were mentioning before as well. Sort of when you came in around, on the Eighth Doctor stuff, uh, around Dark Eyes, that kind of thing, uh, mm -hmm. I once had a bit of an exchange with you on Twitter uh, discussing uh, Master of the Daleks. Oh, yes. And you said something that sort of lasted, that sort of stuck with me. And it was um, that that was the episode where you really kind of realised what you wanted to do with Liv. Yes. Um, now, sort of since then, you've done a lot of the Liv-centric stuff. You've kind of, mm -hmm. I suppose, in a way, adopted the character. Yes. Um, just sort of how kind of, how well planned was that? Or how much did you plan that, uh, that kind of? continuation with Liv have you always wanted to sort of tell certain stories with her you know did you always want to see her on Caldor did you always want to um sort of see how she got on in present day earth that kind of thing I mean I mean not especially and not especially me uh, particularly I think that is again the thing about um, that's largely produce, producer or script editor decisions um so I think um I, I mean I, I think we'd you can sort of see the way that a lot of that is influenced by the things that have been discussed and happened. Um, so, um, uh, and it, I feel it's a, it's a sign of a sort of a healthy relationship between the production team and the writers in that uh, they'll go, well, what angles can we explore? What angles can we look into and find? So 
in, in particular with Liv, I think it, 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 yeah, I suppose it's the thing where they give me a prompt and then I'll develop that into a story and that story leads them into something else. And with Liv and indeed Helen to a degree, you can see that like right back to say the Red Lady, where the Red Lady uh, leads you into um, absent friends for Helen. Uh, really, because 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 of how that story ends, which wasn't part of the brief, you know, the fact that she ends up in the TARDIS because she and now appears to be a massive, you know, art thief, um, that then triggers a story when they're developing box set three, which is this idea of well, what happens if she meets her family after that point, and then I kind of tweak that and write the story, and then include the aspect with with Liv and her father, and then that I think then leads to Caldor and Escape to Caldor, which is um, obviously Matt's story. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the, this all kind of develops and changes as we go. And it is a sympathetic is the wrong word, but there, but there's a, a a sense of us all sort of listening to each other and kind of seeing well, where's this character going? What can we do with them? Um, and letting it kind of evolve sort of naturally. I think. Um, I, and I was sort of happy with, with, with Liv to just kind of sort of take her anywhere I wanted to. It was kind of really interesting when, when I was prepping the robots, I listened to Robophobia again, and it, it, it's borderline a different character when you listen to them again, to the one I would uh, right now. But I feel that that journey has been so incremental and the growth of her as a character has been so incremental that you wouldn't really notice as it happens. Uh, but listening back is, if, if anything, kind of a bit of a culture shock because, yeah, she's quite, she's quite straight. Uh, you know, my, my Liv is incredibly sarcastic um, and and uh, wry in, and in, in a way uh, that uh, she isn't in, in Robophobia, but then that sort of developed, I think, by, by just the chain of events that go through her life. Um, I think we're always looking for ways of nudging these characters forward, so it ends up, yeah, with that whole sort of weird sort of chain of events of, of, of basically everything. And I think you've even got an example with that with, with, with Helen most recently, because, uh, and it's not even in my stories, because it's Roy's a uh, lovely couple of stories about um, uh, Helen and her relationship with her brother. So unit dating and Albie's angels, which are both, you know, phenomenal. But we, but yeah, the kind of the development of that, of of them going, uh, listening to uh, um, unit dating and go, oh, oh, there's something we can use. Let's do a story about that. And then I imagine there's every possibility that will happen with them in the future. There'll be something from Albie's angels that will then lead to further things and further development. And, and it's always going to be there. It's always going to kind of happen in the background, I think. So, of all of the sort of story arcs, sets of stories, uh, and series that you've worked on, what would you say is the one that you've perhaps had the most control over? What's the most sort of John Dorney set of stories at Big Finish? Oh, I mean, probably Dalek Universe. Yeah. I mean, that's the one where um, I sort of properly went in and wrote up um, a list, a, a plan. Uh, and the plan changed, as plans often change, but pretty much the shape and style of that arc uh, was right in there from the get-go. And, uh, um, yeah, it wasn't, I wasn't supposed to do more than one. I mean, I was supposed to do, like, an opening two-disca. Uh, but, yeah, the, the Trojan Dalek was a, a, a last-minute one uh, because something didn't work out behind the scenes. And that was quite a weird one, anyway, because that was going... There was at least one other story where that happened where I was having to think, well, we can't do the plan... So I have to come up with something that fills the same sort of spot in the plan without being the same thing I'd originally planned, which was tricky. Um, uh, I will say, I mean, if there's one thing I didn't come, I, I think that I didn't come up with the title of Dalek Universe. I, but um, I kind of, 
And I, I, I know there's occasionally a bit of knockback about that where people kind of say, but it doesn't have the Daleks in it that much. And you, but there are also people who kind of went and got announced going, by God, this is just nine discs of Daleks. And you go, no, so you kind of can't win in a way. It, it does feel, I think it feels like a really sort of apt title in a way because it is a story where the Daleks are kind of in the background throughout it. And it is overall got a, a Dalek aspect to it underlying it. Um, but yeah, certainly that was, I can't even remember the genesis of that, but I think it, I, was, I was asked to kind of come up with a arc for, you know, Anya and Mark. And, um, and, and then I, th I think we were vaguely wanting it to be quite sort of Terry nation. -y. I think that's the main thing. Cause if anything, we could, it's, it, that's what I think it is. It's obviously a Terry nation universe, but you could, that's not really a title in universe, in Doctor Who universe. You can't call it Terry nation universe. So Dalek universe it was, but, it, it, but it, I think there was a joy to explore that kind of vibe. And certainly with something like, um, Dalek master plan existing, there there's a, a real sense of that sort of already being a thing of that being a big old, universe with different aspects of it that all kind of feed in it meant that um as i say i wasn't entirely sure from the get-go what my story was going to be other than the doctor turns up and it's about time travel just because it sort of has to be and trying to figure out an another angle on it i think initially i might have had the mechanoids in it but then i bumped them over to andy and said do you want the mechanoids you can have the mega mechanoids and he initially wasn't keen but then they solved the plot problem for went, yep i'm having the mechanoids now um and, but I was thinking, I was trying to find a new angle for it. And, I, and part of the reason, even though it's not a Terry Nation character, I went with, um, you know, the, the not, not technically the monk, um, was because that feels sympathetic to that universe, because obviously the monk appears in Dalek Masterplan. Uh, and it feels very much of that, that slightly um, heightened, pulpy vibe that I think you always get from, Nation, which I really wanted to sort of replicate. Um, I feel there's aspects of that in what became Syndicate Master Plan too, um, which again has a, quite a bit of control, but it's a bit less arcy because it's obviously only really got like about five episodes that are purest arc based. Um, and that was another fun one. And that was again one where um, you know got given the brief of um, the, the Dalek Master Plan delegates, uh, which is one of those briefs you initially go, "Are we what eight really?" And then the more you think about it, you go. Oh no, that's really good because uh, I don't know if I talked about this in the extras or something like that. But the realization that you've got a bunch of monsters who had a history with the Doctor and probably didn't like him that much, but we know nothing about any of them or what they are. Uh, that's such a great opportunity. So I could just start doing this slightly mad thing where I was going, right, let's find out what all of them are and what they do. So okay, Salation's a, Salation is a nebula. Why not? Let's go with that. That's fun. And uh, and um, the big Christmas tree one is the enforcer and the, the odd job in effect because they kind of wanted to have a bit of a Bond film feel. So if you kind of notice, there's aspects in um, Guy's one which is a bit Thunderball and aspects of mine which are a bit... Um, is it on the Majesty's Secret Service? I think there's aspects of different ones where I kind of like riffed on it a bit because I thought that would be fun. Um, so yeah, and then others... Aspects of, say, countermeasures I had a good degree of control over, but then again, we'd sort of discuss that. And a lot of the time with, with some of these, I think, it, as I say, we'd go out for long meetings and have big, long discussions about uh, what sort of things. So I, I think even something like Stranded, I do remember like having a conversation when we were discussing what we were going to do. I came in and said, I'd like to do a contemporary historical. 
and and I think I remember Lisa McMullen saying, "What well, can, can I have some science fiction in mine?" And everyone go, "Yeah, yeah, it's fine. All of the others can have some science fiction." But even then, I think that tone kind of fed into the others into a degree. Even though I th- don't think I, I like, I don't think anyone necessarily tried. But we all kind of found ourselves writing it. Go, oh no, this is quite. This isn't very sci-fi, is it? This isn't very sci-fi. I mean, that's quite liking that. But um, yeah, I wouldn't say I had a control on that one to any real degree. Um, other than just the occasional bit of conversation and, and long chats. So that, as I say, almost all of those, Matt and David, uh, made all of the big choices and the big decisions, um, but we're listening to the writers and listening to what we were kind of thinking we would do. So, and, and But then occasionally, yeah, you just kind of follow the brief. The ones that are absolutely kind of me are, yeah, Dalek Universe, I'd say, is the one that really leaps out at me. So uh, you, in addition to writing you know, your own news stories you've also adapted um a number of pieces from other sources um yeah. the likes of lost stories and doctor who novel not not of yeah, tongue tied sorry doctor who novel adaptations and um yeah. the avengers lost stories as well what's it like um to write you know a, a, a new script based on those pre-existing well, I mean, pieces of work it, it, it's interesting there there's no easy answer to that because it's i mean like i was having a chat with um various people about um, Lost Stories the other day and, and, and specifically in contrast with I think the Avengers um, and the Avengers particularly the comic strips are probably the the, the most clear-cut example of, 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 of the, the difficulties or the the oddity of it as a situation in that if you compare the comic strips that we're adapting to the episodes that we've made of them you'll see that there is no hard and fast rule about any of them like, I mean, some of them are more available than others. I know that you can buy the the initial like two M Appeal comic strip sets. You can buy and do a contrast. But even just within the two of mine that I adapted in those first two, so the Norse Code and the Secret Six, um, you can see that the Norse Code kind of repurposes everything and like recontextualizes a lot of it. Whereas the Secret Six is almost like the same story in the same order. Um, but there are other ones where um, the one that's just come out, um, uh, this train terminates here. That's very close story-wise across a lot of it, but the previous two I'd done, uh, whatever next, and uh, is it you won't believe your eyes, yeah, something like that. Um, again, both of those, maybe about the first half of them, go quite close to the storyline of the comic strip, and then veer off in another direction. I tend to say that um, as long as it is broadly speaking the same nominal thumbnail, for a better term, of the plot. Um, occasionally, there's one or two writers I've worked with on, on like the comic strips who've like brought, we've given them a comic strip and they've just added a plotline where you're going, yeah. If I was summarising this, I'd then say it was the one about this, which was not the the pitch of the original comic strip. We go, the central pitch has to be the one from the comic strip. That's the key thing, and you can bring in other things, but but turning it into a different story, going, no, 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 we want this one adapted. Uh, that's why we suggested this one. Don't try and turn it into a different story. Um, the lost stories. Again, it's a variable thing because um, most of the time there's some kind of synopsis. Um, it's not usually a full script, but I always say that I think the the choice is well. You know, if, if, if no one would ever make the specific synopsis that no, we don't do that with us. And, you know, I write a synopsis. There is always tweaks and, and development on the way. So I would always say it, we'll allow a certain degree of development from the synopsis. Um, and in some cases that makes a lot of sense. So something like the foe from the future, 
Um, that's quite a detailed synopsis for episode one, and episode five is a page, and episode six doesn't exist. And episode one is relatively close to the episode one of the audio. And again, they could be, I think it's a bit of a sliding scale that the more it, the more the storyline is, the the more there is me. So it's kind of or vice versa rather. So um, uh, so that kind of veers away. Something like um, Lords of the Red Planet kind of deals with it in a different way as well. That's I think like quite close to episode one from one storyline. There are two different storylines of Lords of the Red Planet, and I picked a lot from episode one of one and the rest from two to six of the rest and try to make them a coherent whole um and the elite was like two and a half pages um so there's no set rule with any of these that with something else that exists like say the avengers lost episodes uh well it doesn't exist obviously they're lost but with something where there's there's an a, a pre-existing so the novel adaptations i think there is a um an obligation to do that script and most of the time, certainly in terms of the Lost Avengers episode, where there is a script that exists, but we don't have the episode, I feel it's a historical document and you have to do as close as you can to that. So occasionally people have found, uh, been a bit going, well, sometimes this feels a bit sexist. And you're going, yeah, but that's the script that was made. And I feel that you've got to represent the script that's made. It is not for me to sort of censor it. There was one, uh, I think it's the Yellow Needle, but I could be wrong, where, uh, no, actually, uh, yeah, it is the Yellow Needle, I think, um, where... Uh, the where it's partially set in Africa and like an African state where um, all of the natives of this country were written in such a jaw-dropping offensive manner. They go, we we cannot do this. And, it, and more, if anything, than because I didn't want us to send it out to actors now and saying, we think this is fine for you to do. I think the actual, there would potentially have been um, an editorial justification of doing it, just in the sense of going, this is what they made in, at the time and we are representing that but no I, I think actually like sending something out that would be genuinely offensive to people is, it would, would not happen um, the latter episodes of that were largely based on surmise from scripts and telesnaps and it's interesting kind of having Tunnel of Fear being a really uh, interesting version of that because obviously the episode was found roughly six months after I'd written my episode and it's it's a it's almost entirely different. So uh, it does show how much sort of guesswork and, you know, cause I know people have like tried to surmise what the story is from looking at like in detail from looking at the telesnaps and even with my hat going on, go right. I know which bits they've made up and, in, and, in, and like guessed, uh, there were certain things that I, I still was slightly led astray on. And, uh, and it's, but it's a sort of a fascinating thing to watch. I think, I think that I kind of joked about how in that specific episode, anytime there was like a 50, 50 choice, I would inevitably go for the other one when you actually see the episode itself. And it was, it was a very odd experience. Um, yeah, yeah, and again, others where, like the novels and something like Ultimate Evil, which I script edited, um, yeah, there's the sense of going, you've got to do what exists uh, because this was developed and prepped and, you know, in the novel novel cases, made. Uh, so it's a, it's a slightly different approach. So there's no specific one-size-fits-all approach to ad adaptation, really. It's whatever you're adapting and being respectful to that and trying to be honest about what it is. I think Tunnel of Fame must have been sort of a particularly interesting thing to turn up after doing it. Mm. Um, and yeah. it's like, you, you can definitely tell that it, it it's the same story. It's definitely sort of the same episode, but it's, 
yeah, it, it's sort of really interesting how it kind of it does branch when you listen to it and watch yeah, the original. It, it's I, it was a weird thing to watch because it felt like somebody had taken a script of mine, travelled back in time, and adapted it sixty years ago. <laughs> um, and, and also, as well, the other thing that, that's weird, um, in particular, I think the really good example is when you look through the telesnaps, there is a whole sequence with a fortune teller. And you go, well, what what does this bit mean? There's nothing in the synopsis we have that explained what the fortune teller was about. And go, why did they see the fortune teller? What do they learn from the fortune teller? And trying to find a way of making that work in the plot. And then we actually find the episode that's just a throwaway joke. They don't... They, 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 the fortune teller contributes nothing. It's just when you're writing it, you're kind of trying to make sure what well, everything has to fix and work towards it. And and you forget things like occasionally they were padding it out a bit. Uh, we're just like throwing whatever they could and just the wayside. But you know, you're trying to make everything significant, tie together, and going, yeah, not everything was, not everything fit like that. So yeah, I'd, I'd be fascinated to see some of them um, as, as they actually were or learn anything more about any of them. But yeah, obviously it would be very different from whatever we did. They were hoping to give some sort of flavour of those things. So it's uh, as is well known, a lot of writers are given the sort of shopping lists, briefs. Mm-hmm. These are the things we'd like you to include. Um, sort of how often do you get those compared to how often do you get to come up with essentially what you want to write? Are there a lot of shopping lists? Um, I, I wouldn't say there are a massive amount of shopping lists. Um, i say if you're working on something with a bit of an arc, so obviously something like Stranded, there's usually a degree to which you're given um, a framework. Uh, and there are th- there's other sort of levels with that as well, where because I, I, occasionally when there's like, People often say, I find on the internet, they go, well, you know, it's very clear that somebody was just told to write a Dalek story rather than coming up with a really good idea for a Dalek story. You go, well, you sort of have to be given the brief to come up with a Dalek story, even if you mentally go, yeah, nobody's going to like spontaneously generate a really good Dalek idea. There's nothing wrong, I would say, with ever with being given a shopping list. It's it's just another way of spurring an idea. Um, if, if occasionally that leads to a story that is less successful, that's that's down to the writer, not the actual not the brief. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've occasionally been asked to do, you know, a Dalek story, and then I'm going, well, what, what can I do with Daleks that's fresh and new and original? And that's the approach I think is the best way of taking that. Um, there's always usually something like uh, this Doctor, this companion. Um, and and then occasionally there can be a flavour of, well, the other story in this set is going to f- be set in this time period, so can you do something that's contrasting? Um very, I rarely would say there's absolutely nothing. Every now and then I've had, I, I, I came up with an idea for something where I said, if we do, if we get the chance to do a story with this monster, I've got an idea. And and the script editor emailed me going, you know what, actually, we've got this vague slot, we might have something we can do with that. Do you want to use that? And, and every now and then it's like, so um, the Monsters in Metropolis came from me, um, wandering around and thinking, well, what sort of celebrity historical could I do with the Ninth Doctor? And thinking of Fritz Lang and immediately getting the idea for um, what became Monster Metropolis and going, yeah, this kind of needs to be a Cyberman story and emailing it through. Um, but I, I'd not been asked to do a Cyberman story, but I came up with an idea for a Cyberman story. So I thought that's I like that idea too much to not send it over. Um, but, but that's far and away the rarest way of it happening. And, and to be fair as well, for something like something like the Daleks, I'm probably not going to be trying to come up with an idea, but that doesn't mean that, because I've done them, and but it, it doesn't entirely feel like 
one couldn't pop up. But there's again nothing wrong with if somebody emails me and says, "Can you write me a Dalek story?" I go, "Yeah, I can probably find another angle with them." Um, uh, yeah, and, and and there's a few times when. Yeah, I can. I can, I've just normally sent through an idea, and it's happened to match with what people are doing. But by and large, there's a brief of you know character doctors or whoever it is, whatever series you're working on, a few ideas and and something you can bring to the table. If anything, I kind of I do tend to think it probably generates better ideas um, because just having the freedom to go come up with anything at all. Uh, I, I think it can veer a bit dull. I kind of like the. F I think it's useful to have a framework um, or something as a starting point that you can look for new angles on. Um, and again, that's not necessarily an old monster, an old companion, or anything. It can be just like we need something that's set around this kind of time period or something like that. Then you go right. What can I find? What's an exciting angle I can have on that? It gives you a, a, a route in um, and uh, and something to subvert. I think. Um, so we've already spoken then about uh, your role as a script editor. Um, I was just wondering if you would tell us a bit about what that sort of involves. Is it quite a clearly defined role, or is there can it can it vary from project to project? I mean, I think it varies from project to project. It varies from script editor to script editor. Um, there are some people who have an incredibly different approach to it. Um, uh, mine generally is I kind of think of myself as like an intelligent listener slash viewer. I'm trying to help the writer come up with the best version of their story possible. I don't want to try and do what I would do. I, I don't want them to kind of be telling the story I would tell. They, they're allowed to tell the story they would tell. And, and, and other writers are away. Other writers, other script editors can veer more towards bringing you to the place of what they want. And that's a perfectly legitimate choice that, that, and a perfectly legitimate, legitimate approach to it. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, it's a question of reading through stories and reading through storylines and trying to nudge them into the best shape possible. Um, and, and and sometimes if they're not particularly working, doing some of the work yourself and uh, trying to yeah, bring your edge to it and make it all work for you. Um, and, and, and yeah, you can have a slightly weird mix where there's somewhere I'll, I'll be reading through someone's script and going, oh my God, have I forgotten how to do this because I'm barely noting this at all. And then you get the next one, and, and it'll be reams of notes because you know the first one was just really good. And uh, you, you, I, d I don't like to justify my presence unless it my fee uh, by um, uh, yeah doing doing any of that. Um, it's sort of just that, really. I mean, I, I, every now and then, I, I don't really get much say in anything like writers. Um, every now and then, I get the chance to suggest someone. It's a bit. Of, I, I think people kind of often. Uh, in the wider world, sort of confuse the the, sort of the, the audio thing where we're effectively freelancers with more of the TV one because yeah we don't it's not really our job to uh, like try and find new writers or whatever that's largely the production side um, though I try and do a bit of that anyway because I feel it's you know always worthwhile trying to keep that door open and try and get people in um, but we're by and large like contracted on a specific script by script basis and yeah no but and, and yeah so I will kind of well, box set by box set basis um and then occasionally I'll try and find people I can get in if there's for whatever reason somebody who might be good for the brief but um yeah it, it, it's generally kind of trying to develop people um it, develop people's scripts to the best version of those that we can or, and as I say for me it's always the best version of their script in their voice ideally um, so, of everything that you've worked on, uh, 
which big finish release would you say that you're the most proud of which is kind of the one that stands up as the one you're happiest with or well that's that's i mean that's all manner of slightly different things the the, the uh my, my sort of natural tendency is that people will occasionally ask me what my favorite is and, and it's really hard to be just kind of narrow it down because I've not not just because I've done so many, but because you know you kind of forget them once you move on. I always talk about them being like um, sort of train carriages where kind of like you shunt them along and they kind of one's here and then another comes along and shunts that one along and then the next one shunts that along and eventually you kind of go there's this enormously long train you can vaguely see a carriage up there. We go, I think that was probably quite a good carriage back there, wasn't it? That was quite a nice one, but yeah, there's so many in the way, and so it's you. There's a bit of an immediacy bias, so. Um, in the last few years, things like uh, Monsters in Metropolis and uh, Buying Time the Wrong Woman, um, Invention of Death, um, also is where I kind of remember like writing them and being proud of them. Day of the Master. Um, uh, I, I mean, Absent Friends is obviously the one that kind of people talk about a lot because of the various awards, but there's a slightly weird thing with that one where that one I had to work quite hard from the synopsis and a few bits of it where it was... Um, difficult to write on a technical level uh, not on an emotional level I know people would kind of expect that from the content but it, it kind of wasn't on that level but on a technical level where I, I could kind of hear the cogs going a bit and uh, and for whatever reason I can't quite relax listening to it though I, I appreciate this one that people have said has affected them and can and um, helped them so I suppose that's probably a, a, a good answer in a way it's something where because there are a lot of stories where I think, okay, this is fun and, and useful. But what there are various ones where people have been not necessarily emotionally affected. Because again, as I say, Invention of Death, I know affects people. Five Twenty Nine affects people, but I think ones where people have found it useful, probably. So something like Abs and Friends, um, something like oh, I'm trying to figure out. There's another one that kind of left in mind that I forgot what it was. But yeah, just the occasional story where for what? Oh, I mean. And wild animals and and the the the, the stuff with uh, Liv and Tanya, um, which has proved important to people, I think, and something they feel uh, is emotionally and usable on a on a real life basis. And then occasionally there are just ones where people have just found it fun and found it the um, a, a, a release or a. a, a um, Bit of ease after a you know stressful day, whatever those. It's, but but the ones where I think it's probably absent friends and wild animals are the ones where you think, yeah, this has had some actual sort of potential real world positive effects on people, and uh, that kind of go beyond just sort of being a fun story that people enjoy. All really really great stories, um, and uh, yeah, it, I can understand how absent friends would kind of have that that sort of emotional impact and mm-hmm. emotional effects on somebody. Um, which must be a great thing to sort of know and look for. Yes. Um, Connor, do you want to do the next one? Yep. Um, so is there anything that you haven't worked on at Big Finish yet that you would like to, or any ranges that you, you haven't got into yet you'd like to? I, I mean, it's sort of narrowing down a bit. Um, I, I think I'd probably like to do a, um, a, a Paternoster Gang at some point, but I think that's kind of been mooted, but we've never quite got around to it yet. Um, and then um, other things there's um, uh, I mean I'm trying to think I, I haven't done a Blake 7 and always quite fancied a Blake 7 again that's also been talked about but not quite happened I think that's but but you know it's kind of at the point when I hit my 100th 
release or story or whatever it was within the universe, it was largely going, yeah, I don't really need to do that many more of these, really. Uh, I mean, I basically covered broadly every... I think there, there might be a degree of wanting to, like, tie off a few of the companions that I've not done. I still haven't done, say, Turlo. Um... Mm. And and some and, you know Turlo is one of the ones I like grew up with, so it would be quite nice to do a Turlo story at some point. But you know Mark is not always in the country. Um, yeah, there's, there, there are just probably a few handful of ideas now, but actual ranges, none, not not many that sort of actually massively leap out at me. Um, but again, that's the thing where there will be one or two. Where you know, I kind of want to like complete the set. I think I've got at least a couple of doctors I'd like to, you know, write for just to make sure I've got as many of them done as is humanly possible. Um, and and there are also this is all you know. There's there's every chance there's a few of these things that um, I'm not mentioning because I have written for them, but we haven't announced it yet. So um, and I can think of at least one where I'm going, yeah, I could, yeah, I can't talk about that. That's not been announced yet. It won't be for a while, but that's definitely I've done that. Um, even though people might not think I've done that, I've done that. Um, yeah, so there's things like that, really. A John Dorney Blake 7. I'm up for that. Definitely. Yeah, I, I'd be quite tempted, but at this point, I think I'm so, so far behind on knowing what's being done with it. You're going, we're going, yeah, might, the moment feels like it might have passed, but, um, but we should see. Um, I, I guess kind of an extension of that question is, what is there that you sort of currently write for or have written for that you'd like to stick with or go back to sort of you know are you going to stick okay. with the eighth doctor or i mean I, I again i think with those i mean there used to be a while where i thought i would um i'd never kind of i'd, I'd always want to be involved in on some level with the eighth doctor stuff after being involved with it for so long i think it's kind of at that point now where we're going yeah i feel that I, I i could happily sort of i don't i you know i wouldn't ever say no to it I think that's the thing. There's none of these where if somebody was interested in me doing it, I'd probably struggle to go, you know what, I'm done. I don't think I'd ever particularly want to say I'm done with anything. But um, I kind of wouldn't mind it too much. I mean, I had this slightly weird one a few years back because um, I thought I'd done enough of the Avengers. Absolutely thought, okay, you know what, I've done enough of the Avengers and I was aware that I'd sort of written one for every box set of four. And when it was getting reduced down to a set of three, I thought, you know what, yeah, I'm I'm fine with with stepping back, um, because part of the reason I do one every set was that that was one way going. Well, we can bank that. That's fine. We don't have to worry about that one. And then I've got three I can help. I can work with. And when it was reduced to three, you go well again. That's the, it's the same workload. I still only have three to kind of deal with and make sure they make sense. But then uh, we went in with the plan of uh, of doing two sets sort of back to back, which meant that okay, if I drop out now. That means rather than me just dropping out so I've got three to work with and I don't have to get... I would go from having three to worry about to six to worry about. Uh, and it, but if I do one in each set, then I've only got four to worry about, which is the least, you know, I have... And which So it's still more, but it's manageable. And, yeah, because also that thing goes, there are so few releases, I don't really want to, like, stop people who are interested in doing it. And we're getting loads and loads of new really good writers in, and I kind of want people to be doing uh, stories for all these people. I don't want to be um, hogging things really um but um yeah so I, I, I kind of wouldn't necessarily ever say i'm done with anything specifically but i feel very few leap out at me is something where i think you know what this is mine and i don't want to kind of have anyone else on it in fact i don't think really anything kind of makes me feel like that so um because i've done a lot yeah and, and i think when you've done a lot, you go yeah yeah it's, it's probably somebody else's turn to some degree 
I kind of want to wind back in general. So yeah. So going forward, you see yourself maybe doing a bit more sort of the script editingy type work than actually writing. Do you think? Oh, I think I'm probably always going to try writing, but I might be kind of like um, trying to write my own stuff a bit more and um, and just you know taking a bit of a step back. So I'm hopefully going to be able to you know pay off my mortgage relatively soon, and if I can do that, then that means you know a bit less pressure for having to be um, being quite so prolific. I don't think I'm ever going to ever really step back from being finished like 100%. But I think um, like David Richardson, I was having a chat with you a few days ago where he's trying to reduce the amount he's producing and just so he can sort of take a bit more time to enjoy sort of being alive and all that. And I think, because I, I, he's done a lot, I've done a lot and I think there's a point where you go, yeah, I can, I, can, I'm, I feel I've, I've achieved everything I kind of wanted to achieve so I can, uh, but at the same time, I don't ever particularly want to um, drop out completely because I kind of love doing the work. I love the people I work with. Uh, it, it, you know, just being able to discuss stories and ideas with such a wide variety of exceptional sort of creative minds is uh, is really exciting at every time. Tell us a bit about your non Doctor Who work. What what else have you done? Because obviously, yeah, I mean, big finishes into all of it. Yeah, I, lots of scripts for other people every now and then, and in fact, a few where I think there's at least something I wrote might have been during lockdown or might be in 2021 something I did for um, Barnaby Eaton-Jones, um, Spiteful Puppet, which still not quite sure when that's going to happen or be made or done, but that I'm quite looking forward to doing. Something quite fun about doing a kind of a um, non-licensed property, just for the fun of, um, of being able to like say and write things that you wouldn't necessarily be allowed when you're having to worry about a license. Um, uh, I did lots of sort of radio sketches, uh, but I haven't done that for a while. Um, theatre plays like a play called um, uh, Cowboys was my first thing um, but yeah bits and bobs at the moment it is largely just like writing scripts and sending them out to people and seeing um, what people are bit with and developing things takes a long time and and yeah we, I, I mean literally like even about a decade ago I kind of was in with a meeting with uh, Baby Cow which was Steve Coogan's production company where we were discussing a sitcom pilot then people were very keen it was nearly going to go to Sky and then Sky dropped out and then it was you know it, it, all these things where it's still hopeful that they'll get made um, and, and turned into something else at some point um, but yeah I think it, it's um, there's a lot of hanging on in there but we're, we're kind of going well I think on some things yeah I've got like a pilot and and a screenplay that I'm you know, just talking around and going to just try to do a few more over the next few years. Keep writing, keep going. Mm-hmm. Stuff. Um, so that's that's all the, the big horrible questions that we had. I uh, hope it's not yeah. been too They painful. weren't horrible at all, so yes. Marvellous. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Um, so usually we just spend the last sort of five, ten minutes with a guest just chatting Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sort of, where what was your kind of starting point with Doctor Who? Where did you kind of first experience I, it, get into it? I first started watching it um, with the Five Faces of Doctor Who repeat season, which is an unusual bit. The very first thing I ever saw of Doctor Who was the opening of episode one of An Unearthly Child. Uh, and then I didn't watch the episode. I was scared, and it switched off, and I remember, like, I think seeing the cliffhanger. And then I didn't go back for a couple of weeks and then started watching. Uh, th- this is this is something which I remember like talking with a friend and he found it kind of hard to get his head around, but it's true, if I recall correctly, which is they they showed three Doctors and Carnival of Monsters, but the wrong way around. So they start with Carnival of Monsters and then it's three Doctors after that. So the first one I ever saw was Carnival of Monsters. That's the first one 
But as far as I'm aware, I saw in full three docs after that, Logopolis after that, and then I was basically hooked and I'd watched like pretty permanently from Davison onwards and uh, sort of became my, yeah, I sort of jokingly could say that Doctor Who is the love of my life. I, I'm not even sure I'm joking. <laughs> Excellent stuff. So it kind of all went from there and yes. would, would you say that Davison was your doctor then? or I mean, yes, in the modern parlance. I'd say, to yeah. be fair, like I'd say all, like the whole 80s ones were. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't, I, I would, McCoy is, is the sort of the tail end of me like getting around about, I think it was my early teenage years and, uh, and there weren't really quite enough episodes uh, to really feel it was, as an overwhelming presence, but there's a real, Davison and, and, and Colin are, uh, in their TV episodes are a real comfort blanket for me. Um, and that sort of style, um, it was weird, sort of, you know, when I worked on like the Ultimate Evil um, script editing, that where there's something about that tone and style of that season feeling so 1980s and the kind of the florid dialogue and the the, the, the sci-fi names, which just kind of appeals to me on a really gut level because that's my child, um, and I, I can get so much out of watching any of those I think last year I was kind of in the mood for kind of going well I feel like cheering myself up let's do the two doctors um which violent as anything and you know it, it, it's it's got all manner of you know excesses but um yeah it's everything about that I kind of love I know I know it's why I always would get annoyed in my teenage years uh where people can be dismissive of, of you know the, the JNT years and and the 80s doctors Mainly, it's but it's mainly people who were brought up with Pertwee and and Tom Baker. Who go? Do you not think that that maybe that's the? It's because that those ones you prefer because that's because when you were a kid, and you know it's well. People like talk about the title sequence of the Logan. My favourite theme music is the Peter Howell one, absolutely. And I, you know, and I don't have any of that. Well, it's not worthy of the Diamond logo stuff where you're going because I think the Diamond logo is fine. I like the Diamond logo, but I love the Neon logo. Uh, you know, I love so much of this I kind of just adore because it's my period and um, and yeah and I kind of think that I just find something so joyous about all that kind of stuff and I, again but because I was growing up I was watching a lot of them uh, from, on VHS I was you know I, I kind of have a very wide ranging set of tastes across all the classic series uh, what would you say you sort of if you had to pick one Doctor Who story sort of desert island scenario what would it be I mean, it, oh, it's probably City of Death, isn't it? But um, but even then, that yeah, there, there's because I think that one's kind of endlessly watchable, though. Kind of, if anything, a bit quick. Um, the, the, I, I sort of veer back and forth on a lot of them. There are somewhere where I've like spent ages like eulogising about them, and then kind of go, oh, actually, maybe when I watch it again, going, oh, I'm not as, as taken with this this time. Um, but um, there, there's, I, I think that like. City of Death probably is the all-time favourite, but again, it's not especially um, representative, so maybe I'd go for something something else. I don't know. The more I'm going to think about it, the more I'm going, oh, my brain is... Really and I can kind of find joy in like almost all of them. Uh, I, when we're talking, the is it, I've lost track of the date, season nine Blu-ray set, nine, has just come out, and yeah. part of the reason I'm really excited for that was because I really wanted to watch The Mutants again. I hadn't seen The Mutants in years, and thought, you know what? Fancy seeing The Mutants. I can't remember much about the mutants at all. Well, I can now because I just watched it. Um, but uh, yeah, the kind of the ability to hold such joy in watching the mutants um, is, is something I kind of feel 
terribly excited about. And I'm going to be getting on to watch the Web Planet soon on because I still haven't finished the season two one. And the season and Web Planet I adore as well. So um, yeah, they've all got kind of you know aspects of these sort of things for me. Yeah, I think um, I've always said this that there's something there to like in everything. I've never sort of found any kind of Doctor Who unwatchable, unlistenable. There's always something to pick out because you've got like the fundamentals of you know the Doctor. Yeah, great well, character, well, no matter the incarnation. It, it, to be honest, as well, the, the, one of the other things that's kind of the, the the flip side of that is there's always something to be a tiny bit embarrassed by. That's yes. I've always had the theory that so much of what people like a doctor is going, oh, you'd be embarrassed watching in front of in front of this in, in front of somebody else, and you go, you'd kind of be embarrassed by all of it. Yes, I mean, I know you can watch like look at the web and go, oh, I'd be embarrassed by all of the optera dancing about and all that. Be going, yeah, is that really that much? worse an embarrassment than borderline anything else you know i mean and and, and certainly it's fascinating watching doctor who stories with people who aren't doctor who fans so like an ex-girlfriend of mine really was not taken with genesis of the daleks but like creature from the pit um and and that and i think that's a perfectly legitimate thing because you know you watch creature from the pit the dialogue's hilarious it really you know it sings whereas there's a kind of cod militarism to genesis of the daleks you know this is the yeah you, yeah, Jonas said the Daleks, you've got the clown, you know, and you've got, yes, you might have Irato, but you've got the clown. That's, they're, they're, there's not a, this far away from the classic series, there's a bit about, pretty much they all look rubbish on some level. And, you know, let, you, you know it, it felt even, but this was even true back in the past where, you know, Caves of only had the magma creature and Talons, Talons used to be problematic because you had the giant rat. Now it's problematic because of goddamn everything. <laughs> Um, and and the, the moment of realising, going, oh yeah, as a, as a kid, that was yeah, that was should be more uncomfortable with that. Yes, um, so yeah, th- th- there's a lot of the stuff out there where you're going, no, just no. But yeah, but I think generally speaking, I mean, it's one of the things I think that's great about being a fan of that period is it does mean that you can kind of watch anything, you know, because if you if your imagination can get past the fact that so much of that looks a bit stagey and rubbish and all a bit studio backdrop, then you can watch anything, any film, like no, no matter how sort of black and white and poorly put together these days or like any TV show ever doesn't have to all be like the modern, you know, serialized film thing. Yeah. That's the main thing I think Doctor Who's given me is the ability to kind of go, you know what? I will suspend my disbelief for a story no matter what. I think my, one of my favourite ways I've ever seen someone describe classic Doctor Who is as the uh, the gateway drug to British archive TV. Like, yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> you watch yeah. classic Doctor Who, you try a bit of Blake 7, it ends up on a slippery slope to Sapphire and Steel or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no regrets. Actually, maybe regrets. I did watch The Tomorrow People and largely going to go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this has tested me to quite some degree. So... That is uh, all we have time for, but uh, it's it's been absolutely great talking to you. Um, I still feel as though, even though we've had an hour with John Dorney, we've actually barely scratched the surface. There's seven million other things we could have talked about, but that just means we'll have to invite you on again sometime. Um, but uh, meanwhile, we shall say a big thank you uh, and goodbye to our guest, John Dorney. Thank you. And uh, I'll say goodbye to Connor as well. Thank you. And we will be back for more podcasting. Goodbye now. Goodbye.